Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Bernard Golden will join us to discuss healthy and destructive anger. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Bernard Golden, PhD, author of Overcoming Destructive Anger, Strategies That Work. Bernie? Hi. It's a pleasure to have you. Bernie is going to be talking with us today about concepts in his book, including differences between healthy and destructive anger techniques and differentiating and dealing with anger, as well as some of his own personal experiences. Over to you, Bernie. Anything you'd like to say to begin the talk today? Sure. I'm often asked why I started working with anger management. Uh, it wasn't like I a uh, five-year-old thinking, oh, I grew up and be an anger management therapist. In hindsight, I realized that in my personal life, I had some anger as a child and uh, realized I better rein that in. And the way I reined it in was to uh, minimize it, deny it, until I would have a verbal outburst. Uh, initially, it was physical, and that's what made me try to rein it in. Also, my parents, uh, while they were never really rageaholics, they they always picked on each other. There was always criticism or some anger between each other, put it that way. And I think I had the uh, beginnings of a psychologist even then because I felt compelled to help them become less angry. Uh, my mother was anxious. I felt depressed. That's the personal route. And then professionally, I, I worked in the South Bronx as a school teacher for six years. And I tell people I learned a lot of strategies about dealing with my own anger as well as helping children deal with theirs. Uh, finally, in the in psychiatric hospitals I worked at for about 15 years, I put together psychoeducation classes. Uh, one was on anxiety, one depression, and one was on anger. Did you have specific areas of research in your education that guided your work later on, stuff that you were working on that developed your own sense of, you know, your profession and your interests? Oh, I... I do view myself as a, uh, a long-life learner. So I, I, I've read a lot of works on, for example, I did go to a psychoanalytic program for a couple of years. Okay. Cognitive behavioral approaches I've, I've read and attended many workshops. Recently, the last 10 years, I've focused a lot on mindfulness and mindfulness and meditation. And your book also talks about how the research and basically your perspective is associated with this mindfulness and meditation that's tied up in this concept, you talk about compassion-focused theory and compassion-focused therapy. Would you want to say a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, in the last 15 years, uh, out of uh, England, a, a psychologist named Paul Gilbert helped develop compassion-focused therapy. And uh, ironically, when I came across this, I was delighted because it was research-based. Uh, there were science studies. Uh, for all the years of therapy, I'd always encouraged clients talk from their most parental nurturing part. So the compassion-focused theory and, and research has emphasized that when we think compassionate thoughts, 
for others or for ourselves, the same area of the brain fires. And if we do it for some period of time and practice developing what's called our compassion itself, we change our physiology to help us relax. Uh, I should emphasize these strategies are not for everyone. For some people, it actually increases their, uh, their agitation. And not for people who have had real trauma perhaps related to compassion. They may have turned it off. And uh, one, one writer uh, says that if you open the heart with compassion, that's the problem. You open your heart, which leads to feeling and revisiting uh, perhaps some of your pain. You know, some methods and perspectives ask that you really delve deep and acknowledge suppressed fears and anxieties, discomforts. Would your perspective and methodology say refrain from, you know, resurfacing and delving into these areas of discomfort from past trauma, or is it immersive? Uh, I do definitely feel that for people who have extreme ongoing anger issues, behind a lot of it is some core shame, feelings of shame, past wounds that have not been fully acknowledged. So so any anger, I always see anger as one, is a sense of defense on a perceived threat to our health, to our resources, and it also stems from this reaction, whether it's pain, whether it's the anxiety. For you, you're mentioning, you know, this perspective doesn't work for everyone. They may have shut off compassion. Is your aim to help them revisit that feeling or learn to cope with the mental set that they are now working with? Now, at that point, I help them look back at what were some of the triggers of their hurt. For example, one of them seeing me for a couple of years saying, I never admitted to you some things I did that I'm awfully shameful about. And uh, one of the strategies certainly was to help them talk about that, but to help them realize, too, that at that given moment, he felt so isolated and so lost, and uh, he was a different person. It's easy to beat ourselves up with hindsight about the insight we didn't have, and so I encourage him, one, to revisit Sometimes in, in writing a letter to that earlier self, going uh, to forgive that earlier self, but also being empathic with one's own pain. Uh, we talk a lot about being empathic with other people's pain. I think genuine connection with ourselves is based on being empathic with our own pain. And actually that builds our capacity to be empathic with others. When, when we minimize our own pain, uh, we, we may be more prone to anger. When we minimize our own pain, we, we won't see in others if you want to run from it. So we look back and really make these with uh, pain they suffer. And something I really like that you said um, just then was how often and how quick we are to beat ourselves up about insight that we didn't have. Hindsight bias and the past is always seen through all this insight that we gain as we move forward in life. So I think that that's really meaningful and I am interested in where you attribute meditation as a therapy in all of this because it comes up in your book and it's something that is elusive for people and experts because it's so personal. Uh, I use an anger log, and the anger log okay. I, I'll emphasize as a way of helping people more in touch with what are they experiencing in that one second when their anger is triggered and they act on it. And by... Helping them look at that anger log, they identify the feelings that came right before their anger. Other, they identify uh, expectations that may be totally unrealistic, although 
they're not really aware of it at the moment. Uh, mindfulness is a way of becoming a little more observant of what goes on inside us. Observant, but also less reactive. We're not. I, I, I tell people you're looking at your thoughts, for example, like the um, the LED printouts on a, on a highway sign mm -hmm. that have been programmed, and uh, these you don't know where or how sometimes with your thinking has been programmed. But mindfulness helps us step back and observe, okay, what thoughts am I having? What are my expectations? Uh, example I always give is highway uh, anger. We know for sure that not everyone's considerate and cautious on the highway. Someone cuts in front of you, you get angry, and most people will say, yes, we avoid. We don't include, mind ourselves, that, oh, yeah, not, not everyone's cautious. Mm -hmm. but we have expectations that we sometimes aren't aware of. And mindfulness helps us step back and become less reactive. I should emphasize that formal mindful meditation, where so coming back thoughts to breathing, thoughts to breathing, patience uh, to the breath. But I think a lot of the work goes on with informal uh, mindfulness. Meaning, throughout the day, I encourage uh, people to do a check-in several times a day, do a body scan to identify what are you feeling in your body tension or relaxation, mm -hmm. uh, do a, a uh, mental checkup in terms of emotions. What are you feeling emotionally at a given time? And by helping people turn their eyes uh, inward, so to speak, they get a better feel for what is the internal landscape. So the more they do that, they're out there, not just sitting down. Right. So would you say that, you know, meditation as it is, is more to cultivate and foster mindfulness that you can use, you know, alone to evaluate this internal landscape that you talk about? Exactly. It gives us a pause, and that's mm -hmm. part of healthy anger is to be able to pause between experiencing the feeling and deciding whether or not to, to do anything about it at all. I have an example of uh, people sometimes do mindful meditation formally, but they actually don't apply it to their day. Years ago, I was at a bank. Uh, it was a Friday afternoon, and there was a long line with only two windows open at that time. It, it was pre-ATM. A woman comes in behind me and starts yelling at people in the bank, get more tellers behind your windows. Everyone just turned around, and okay, this really was agitated. Someone else walks in, and the woman behind me, who had just yelled, says, oh, Linda, I didn't see you at the meditation class last Friday. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was an excellent example of that we don't uh, translate from those speak on the cushion, as they say, to daily life. I'd call that a perfect example. One more thing here as we wrap up. Would you be able to talk a bit about how you came to know about and maybe advise other people in committing to the practice of healthy anger? Sure. About 2003, actually years before, I started helping children and teens manage their anger. And uh, healthy anger involves learning how to create that pause that I was referring to. Uh, healthy anger involves turning our attention inward. To look at my expectations, uh, are they realistic, are they unrealistic? And it also involves looking at the key desire. In many ways, uh, our anger is a threat to some key or desire or value that we hold. My need for trust, my need for security, my need to feel empowered, my need for respect. And so 
tells us more about ourselves than the person or situation that's triggering it. And so healthy anger also involves, uh, at some point, uh, you are going to communicate what your feelings are that you do in an, in an assertive way. And I should emphasize that people talk about anger management. The goal is not to do away with anger, but to develop as many strategies as you can so that you can develop strategies that are most appropriate with given situation. Anger can be very constructive. It helps uh, political movements come out of anger, the, the, the marches the marches that we see going on or protests. They can be, in a very non-aggressive way, uh, an expression of our anger. Great. Thank you very much, Bernie. Thanks for talking with us on the show today. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.